Well, what we're doing here over these next few weeks is we've, we've started a series where we're looking at the most misused verses in the Bible. And last week, we started by, by just saying, okay, let's kind of just take a 50,000-foot view of what exactly is involved in this before we jump into the particular ones. And, and so we looked at some of these issues and challenges that, that face us, that we, we have this task as followers of Jesus to say, I I have scripture, and one of my tasks is I have to be able to understand it myself if I'm going to be able to engage with, with others. And it's, it's a really powerful thing because this is what Paul says. This is the message of reconciliation, God to, you know, God to people, God to the world. And he says, and I'm going to use you to do it. But it's, you know, we said last week, it's also a really dangerous thing because if I get this part wrong, man, I can really screw a lot of things up. And so there, there's this task that we have. And you remember the big word we used last week that we said this is kind of the task of delivering a message and interpreting it? Hermeneutics. So good. Awesome. Hermeneutics is, is the task of how do I interpret something? Like this message could be a piece of literature or maybe even a piece of art or a legal document or in this case, this library of 66 ancient books from a different culture and language, like how do I rightly interpret it? Because it's so easy, I've done this throughout my life, to, to, get, to get it wrong. And I do so to my own peril. I do so to the peril of my mission as an ambassador to my world. And so um, this week, next week, we're going to be looking at one particular passage, just to kind of give you a little preview. Um, we're going to be talking about Jeremiah 29, 11, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Matthew 7, 1, a passage that in various different reports, many of which I have read, has actually become the most well-known, at least as far as well-cited, the most commonly cited Bible passage, at least in the West, at least in America, even more so than John 3, 16, which we all know so well, many people do, but Matthew 7, 1, which is, you know what it is? Yeah, do not judge, or you too will be judged. And this presents a lot of questions for us. Um, how, do, how, how do we think about this? So if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 7, or take out your tablet or smartphone and turn your Bible on. Um, open up Matthew chapter 7. And again, I really would encourage you, if you do have a Bible, bring it. Because it's so, so helpful to, as we get used to like reading scripture and it not being such an intimidating thing to, to jump into. Or again, just turn it on. But Matthew chapter 7 is we're gonna, where we're going to primarily be tonight. We're going to jump around a little bit. But primarily there. And the very first verse is what I want us to start with. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And this is um, uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible a version. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Now question, and this I, I really would like to hear from you guys. How, how, how do you think this verse, and we just read one verse, that's it, no, no context. How do you think this verse is misused, misapplied? What would you say? Just yell it out. In what way? Don't, don't ever tell me I'm wrong. Okay, a person might use this passage to kind of justify behavior which, which might be sinful, wrong, unethical. Yeah. It's kind of this, it's, it's sort of a sin shield 
right? It's sort of like no matter what I'm doing, if, if, if you're going to say something about, I kind of throw this out there. My kids play games like um, freeze tag. And I, they were playing one the other day called toilet tag or something, which I'm like, or freeze to- something. It was bizarre. I'm like, that sounds disgusting. You're not you're really using toilet water. No, 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 we're not using toilet But they play these games where it's like capture the flag or freeze tag or whatever. And what there always is in this, in this game is there's like home. You know what that is? Home base. And it's like, if they're on it, it could be like something like this, or if they're touching it, you know, if they're like this, why is that good for them? They're safe. No one can do anything. No, no one can go after them because they're on home base. They're at this like place of neutrality where no one can get them because they're, they're on home base or they're on the, the home toilet or whatever it might be. But there's, there's some sort of place which they can stand, which makes them impervious to any sort of attack or anything like that. There's a place at which they can stand at which going after them becomes illegitimate is the idea. That's kind of how this verse right here has commonly been sort of just put out in the common American Western culture, at least, is that this verse is basically telling people there's a place you can stand, a place you can be given culture and whatever it might be, where you are impervious to moral criticism. Where if someone does come to you and say, I don't know if that's accurate, I don't know if that's right, that doesn't seem appropriate, that doesn't seem ethical, the statements are things like, well, who are you to say? Who are you to judge, right? Um, and so let's look at this. Now, and yet, I'm, I'm gonna, I, don't, I don't accept that interpretation, and yet I kind of get it. I mean, I kind of get it. A lot of people, you, you might have grown up with some of them. People who were just extremely harsh, um, judgmental, it it might have been in the church. It might have been a parent in your life. They were just so quick to criticize anything that you talked about. If you had a parent like that, I'm guessing that you, you probably didn't confide in them a lot. Why not? Because you knew whatever you said, if it was, even if it was just a question, it was a valid question, but you weren't sure, maybe it was out of the bounds, of the, that you were just sort of pounced upon. You were, you, were, you were spoken again, well, no, of course not. And there was no discussion. It was just, no, and I can't believe you even thought that, or I can't believe you did that. So there was a, maybe a harshness to it that I kind of get why many people would say, I sure hope that verse means that. Because <laughs> I've met so many people, some of them representing Jesus, many not, who have had this angry, judgmental, harsh, mean-spirited attitude in how they said what they said, even if they were talking about Jesus or the Bible. So here's what we want to do. First, let's, let's, we read verse one. Now again, what you always do when you're kind of, what in the world does this mean? Take like a step back, right? Look at, look at a little bit larger context. So let's do this. Let's just read verses one through five. Okay. If you have your Bibles, Matthew seven, verses one through five. This is Jesus speaking. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye, while the log is in your eye? 
you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. No, question right here, and let me hear it from you. Anything in that that at all gives us any more information, helps clarify at all a little bit? This is only one step. What do you think? Is there anything more in there that might not seem like he's saying the whole freeze tag safe base thing? What do you think? Mind your own business. Okay. <laughs> There's a warning. You could be skewed in your assessment. Okay. So he's giving some reasons maybe potentially why. Say that one more time. Sort of like putting a mirror in your own face. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's look at the broader context. Again, let's keep kind of zooming back and see if we, make, if we can make sense of this statement of Jesus. Um, if you have your Bibles, anyone have their, like a hard copy with them? Okay, this is in chapter 7. This actually comes in a sermon, okay? So this would be like, imagine if like we take a pastor, you know, Jeff Lucas' sermon from this last week, and we took out like one, one sentence, which people do, and then they write communication cards about it. Um, usually they're me. I do it under someone else's name, but I usually do. But you take a sentence, and then you say, this is what you said. And of course, what the person always wants to say, what, what, but hey, listen to, what, listen to the context of how he said it. This is coming in a sermon. Okay, Jesus' statement is in a sermon. Okay, Matthew chapter five, what's the name of the sermon? Most famous sermon that was ever preached in the world. More books have been written about this sermon than any other sermon in the world, history of the world. So this statement is coming in a context of, of a message, of a sermon, okay? Now think, if, if, if you've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever read portions of it, you've probably at least heard, heard parts of it. Think about this, and you don't have to be super familiar with it, but just think a little, a little bit about this. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying, I want to paint a picture for you about what life will look like if you enter the community of Jesus and you live within the kingdom of Jesus. I want to explain to you what, what, what community is going to look like and what your, what your life is going to look like if you've really entered it, if you've really been impacted by it. And so you'll, again, many of you will know this. And so he, he says things like, um, I want to talk about giving, Right? And then he says, but let me tell you how giving can go wrong. You remember what he says? He says, some people give, but how do they give? They give what? They give in front of everyone. They want to be sure that when they give, everyone's watching and they, they, everyone sees and put it in the offering plate or hand the alms to the person, right? So he talks about giving, but he says, let me tell you how giving goes wrong. He says, hypocrisy screws it up. And then in the exact same sermon, just a little bit later on, he says, let me talk about prayer. He says, but let me tell you how prayer goes wrong. What does he say? How does prayer go wrong? You do it in front of people so that they go, wow, that person's really religious. They've got good verbiage. They can go on and on. You know, they say nice things. They're, they know scripture because they quote it. And, and so they do it to impress people <laughs> instead of it being a me and God thing. And he says, so let me tell you how prayer goes wrong. Hypocrisy jumps in and it totally 
perverts it. And then he says um, fasting. This is all in the stage, just one right after the other. How does fasting go wrong? Fasting is where you abstain from food in order to focus on prayer or something. How does fasting go wrong? Yeah. Over-dramatize it. Uh, remember he says that, you know, like you look like you haven't eaten. You're like, oh, I haven't eaten for a couple of days, been praying. Oh, baby, it's hard. It's okay. Not me, Jesus. You know, that sort of thing, right? Uh, he goes, no, no, if you're going to fast, put oil on your face. Do your hair look nice. Because why? Not because looking nice is important. Because don't let yourself get sucked into what, how hypocrisy will screw up even the most wonderful thing like fasting. Then he gets to this topic of judging. And so here's the question. Is he saying that judging should never happen? Or, in context, is he saying just like how, here's how prayer can go wrong. Here's how fasting can go wrong. Here's how giving can go wrong. Here's how judging can go wrong. And guess what will mess it up? Same thing that messed up the other ones. (laughs) Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy will screw it up. It'll make it an absolute tool for destruction when in reality it's a gift. Now, we in the West hear that. We go, you got to be crazy judging a gift. That's ridiculous. I'm the captain of my own destiny. No one tell me what to do. I'm <laughs> the reason you think that is because you're a 21st century Western enlight- post-enlightenment person. That's why you think it. That's why I think that. Not all cultures and not all times thought that. And so here's, here's what we realize here. Um, take, take a look at if, if there's any doubt that that's what Jesus had in mind. Same sermon. Let's go to the end of Jesus' sermon. The very end of chapter 7. Take a look in verse 15. I'm going to read. This is, this is getting to almost the very end of this most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus has talked about how, how so many things, but in this case, how hypocrisy is screwed up giving and how it's screwed up prayer and how it's screwed up fasting and how it's screwed up judging. And then he says this, verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Instead, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and it's thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. If you were to take one word, think of one word and summarize. So how is it that Jesus's followers, what tool are they supposed to use in order to be able to recognize false prophets from true prophets? What, what must they do? They must make a judgment. They have to judge. They have to assess. They have to discern, make a call. False prophet, true prophet. False word, true word. Without making an assessment or a judgment, you would never know (laughs) what's true and what's false, what's good and what's bad. So is Jesus saying that judging is always wrong? It sure doesn't seem like it. It wouldn't make sense. He would be contradicting himself. He would be going against and, and undercutting the very basis of his whole sermon and message here. So that clearly can't be what he is saying here. Finally, a good rule for figuring out what exactly did Jesus mean by that or what's going on? You know who's the best interpreter of Jesus? Yeah, Jesus. That's the answer that always works, right? 
Um, what did Jesus mean? Well, find a parallel passage. We've got these, what are called synoptic gospels. And John's these three synoptic, meaning they're, they're all kind of looking at the same incident going on, but from different perspectives. And, and there's a lot of overlap. They write about similar events and purposes and points. Not Matthew 7, but John 7. John 7, verse 24. Let me give you a little bit of context here. The religious leaders have come, they're listening to Jesus preach and teach. The crowds are there as well. And Jesus discerns that their intent is to take his life, is to kill him. And so he says, why do you want to kill me? And they go, you're mad. No one wants to kill you. You know, like, darn it, he knows we want to kill him. And then, and, and then the, there's this dialogue back. And the reason why they're mad is because on the Sabbath, when no work was to be done, he did the work of healing. He healed someone. And so let me just kind of pick up in um, John 7, 15. Excuse me, John 7, 21. He said, I did one work. He's talking about this healing. And you're amazed? Jesus answered, consider this Moses, they give credence and credibility to. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man, a baby on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses won't be broken, are you angry at me because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath? And then here's the key phrase. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Semicolon. Rather make a right judgment. See, what Jesus condemns is hypocritical, self-righteous, uninformed, naive judgments. He says, that's bad. That's destructive. What he says, therefore, but, but what ought you do? Make a right discerning, accurate judgment. Jesus calls us to judgment, but in a very specific way, making a right judgment. Now, the question is, how do we do that? <laughs> One of the things I, uh, I heard someone say earlier, I said, you know, kind of what's the challenge? This is like, well, but none of us is objective, right? I mean, I know I'm, well, I'm probably more objective than everyone else in my life, but other people in my life are not as objective. That's how we all think. Have you heard these reviews where people are asked, like, how, how good of a driver are you versus other people? Everyone, virtually everyone, rates themselves a much better driver than average. Everyone does. What's that about? What's this thing right here? If, if that's true, how am I really going to be able to discern, judge, make a right judgment in a way that doesn't skew things? In a, in a way that doesn't kind of uh, misrepresent things. Well, that's the brilliance of Jesus. That's what's packed in this passage here. Not don't judge, but he said, let me give you the key. And it's brilliant. So let's take a look again at Matthew chapter 7. And the brilliance of what Jesus is actually saying in this passage. Let's read it again. Chapter, uh, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how do you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly. Clearly 
to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now, it's my guess, if you go to Matthew chapter 13, we learn a little bit about Jesus' profession. What was he? Carpenter. This is probably an illustration that came out of some experience, I'm guessing. Carpenters know what it's like to have a little dry piece of something shoot into their eye. It stops you. It makes vision hard to see. It, it, it makes you stop doing the task because you can't quite see what's in front of you. And what's so great is Jesus, as he always does, he, he uses shock imagery. Okay? He's the first shock jock. He uses this imagery that kind of shocks people um, out of self-deception. He says things like, you know, um, you do a really good job as you're trying to make sure that your, that your water is pure. You strain out the gnat that's in there, and then you swallow a camel. What? I mean, it, there are these extreme images that sort of just stops the person, and they have to go, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he says, you notice that there's something, a little speck in someone's eye. He's countless times probably had to get one out of his or one out of his father's eye or, or a coworker. And he says, you know, you're kind of worried about that speck in your neighbor's eye. And all the while, you, you have a two by four sticking out of your... Now, again, if you push these two kind of a literal thing, it just doesn't make sense. And that's the point. He's using an absurdity. He's using hyperbole, this in, intended exaggeration. Now, verse 5 makes clear that there's not a problem with seeking to help people get a speck out of their eye, is there? There's nothing wrong or immoral about that, meaning help, helping others see areas of improvement in their life. However, that kind of help must be based on a realistic assessment of myself. First, that kind of help can only come once there's attention to what are my, what's my baggage? What's my stuff? What am I bringing to this? Let me read this quote from one commentary about hypocrisy in Jesus' comment here. He writes, he, meaning Jesus, doesn't condemn mutual accountability and moral responsibility and the need to address sin in the church. He addresses hypocrisy. But it makes little sense to approach a Christian brother or sister about their specific sin, even if you should rightly do so, if you are committing the very same sin and are unwilling to address it or break free from it. Let me give you an example. Suppose there's a woman who is um, a part of a Bible study, maybe some random church, Timberline Church. And um, she's in one of the groups that goes on, and she hears one woman in the group who is just using kind of vile language, you know, and she's just cursing and just, you know, language is pretty horrific. And so she, in a, in a gentle spirit, goes to the woman, and in a one-on-one, -on -one, following Matthew 18, Jesus' way of you first do it one-on-one -on -one and all that sort of thing, you know, she does the right track. She goes to this woman and, and, and lovingly confronts her about her tongue, the use of her, her language, and then on the way home, she gets on her cell phone and calls up another friend who's group and shares kind of a juicy little piece of gossip. That's hypocrisy. You see, she's addressing, oh, the way you use your tongue, that's inappropriate. But gossip, which is a sin very clearly condemned throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, something that is cancerous to community and destructive to friendships, destroys trust, but she engages in that. That's hypocrisy. Imagine there's a father 
who has a teenage daughter. Uh, teenage daughter is going to go out to the mall. And he says, hey, not okay with the clothes you're wearing. He talks to her about modesty, you know. Appropriate. Is that appropriate? Yeah. If you're a father, amen. Yeah, absolutely, it's appropriate. And so he, he, he says, hey, I want you to set appropriate boundaries. I know how young men think. I don't want you to cause them to stumble. I want you to honor yourself. I want you to... I want men to think of you respectfully. And so he, he kind of sets up appropriate boundaries about, about modesty uh, in, a, in a biblical way and in a way that's sensitive to the culture and all that sort of thing. And, and as soon as she goes off to the mall, house is empty, and he goes over to the computer, gets on, he starts surfing pornography. And he starts with his own eyes and his own heart reveling in the immodesty of some young woman or whatever it might be. That's hypocrisy. And that's why it's so easy for us to step into ways of engaging with hypocrisy. Um, I think one of the most dangerous things is, is for us to be deceived. Um, we, we have something in our culture called virtue signaling, right? You know what that is? Look it up if you don't. <laughs> Virtue signaling is done all the time. As long as I kind of say, yeah, that's bad, that's wrong, that shouldn't be done, it kind of gives me a little bit of the I'm on base again and I, I can kind of do things. I mean, there are stories, we know stories of, of, of preachers who, who have scandalized the church and drug Christ's name through the mud because of their private lives. And what you hear stories from them years later is they say, not always consciously, but I kind of felt like because I was holding the line publicly in such a big way with so many people taking hits for it, it almost gave me a little bit of like, oh, I can kind of indulge here, kind of indulge there. Because I'm doing so much virtue signaling leads to hypocrisy. One author writes this, Jesus does not forbid all moral judgment or accountability. Rather, he forbids harsh, prideful, hypocritical judgment that condemns others outright without first evaluating one's own spiritual condition and commitment to forsake sin. And yet, this is what we're called to do, you guys. We, those of us who say, I am a follower of Jesus, is not merely a vertical statement. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm not merely saying me and Jesus. When I say I'm a follower of Jesus, what it means is I've been adopted into a family. It's this and this. And there are ties, there are responsibilities, there are expectations that again, we bristle because we're individualistic, because that's our culture, okay? Nevertheless, there are responsibilities that we have to each other. That's why Jesus' half-brother James, in his letter, writes this, James 5.19. He says, my brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his wave will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's a holy calling that we have to engage in each other's lives in this way. And yet, these same authors, they talk about it all the time, we need to do this, they keep repeating, be careful. Be careful 
Why? Because there's a danger for the one who wants to take that task on. And here's the danger. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says this. Brothers, if someone is caught in any wrongdoing, he's talking just about, you know, what James is talking about. If anyone's caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should restore such a person with a gentle spirit. And without even putting a period down it, he says, but watch out for yourselves that you will not be tempted. And I don't know, I don't know what kind of temptation. I don't know, maybe the same temptation. Maybe the, maybe the temptation to feel superior. Maybe the temptation to sort of feel like, well, I'm, I'm standing for the truth up here. You know, I, man, I saved this person's life, saved him from death. I can kind of indulge a little bit here you know, whatever it might be there. And so we're called to examine ourselves. But now why is examining ourselves so difficult? Because we just don't see things. One of my favorite, um, my favorite book of all time is Mere Christianity. My favorite chapter in Mere Christianity is called The Great Sin. It's about pride. It's, it's what Lewis says is, is the greatest sin of all. It was the first sin. It's, it's the worst sin. Um, and he, he's talking about, in this case, pride. It could be a lot of different sins, though. But listen to how he talks about, about this and how kind of tricky he's, he, uh, he says this is. He's talking about pride. He says, there is one vice, destructive thing in our life, pride. There is one vice of which no person in the world is free which every person in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. <laughs> and, of which, and of which you can't stand, he says. He says, there is no fault which makes a person more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. Um, there's nothing that I am more disposed to than pride and yet nothing that I see least in myself and nothing I see more in others. And I, why is that? Well, think about it. Sin is a deception. Remember last week we talked about Satan comes to Eve with, with a deception. He doesn't hit her with a stick. He hits her with an idea. You can't trust God. Sin is deceptive. So when I am embracing sin in my life, I am deceived my outlook onto the world is off. It is skewed because I have a log sticking out of my eye. Sin is deceptive. <clears throat> so I don't even always see it in myself. So how do we do it? Sounds hopeless. I, you guys could, I'm, on, I'm the only objective one here. You all could line up and come by me and I just tell you what's wrong with you. <clears throat> Scripture talks about two ways that those of you who are not objective and those of me who are not objective about myself can actually remove the log from my eye. First one is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has access to chambers of your heart that no one has access to, including yourself. And the primary tool that the Holy Spirit will use to do that kind of investigative snooping around and sweeping out is this. He just will. And not by this. And reading, oh, that's how God leads me. That's how God's dealing with me and helping me to see my true self. No, no. 
It's, it's by doing things like, and be totally honest, I had some uncomfortable moments this week. I've, I've been just reading over this, this chapter and thinking about it. And, and, and uh, you know, anytime you're gonna preach on something, like you're just, you know, you're worried. Like, I hope I have something good to say about this. I don't, you know. So it's like, you're thinking about it all the time. And I'm making connections sometimes with my own life. And I have to believe it's not just some connection I'm making from a commentary, but actually the Holy Spirit's going into that recess and he's going, hey, Brent, you've never seen this before. That's kind of messy in your life. And there were some times where honestly, my, my response is kind of like, well, I, let's talk about other people, you know? <laughs> but that's how it happens, I found in my life, is it's as I'm thinking about a passage, like I'm just thinking, of, kind of like, you know, the way you worry, I'm really good at worrying. Like I can, I can just worry about something just like all that. It's, it's like constantly in the back of my mind. That's the idea of meditation. It's just this idea. This, it's just constantly back. You're just constantly thinking about a little here, little there. You don't fully get it, but you're just thinking. You're just mulling or you're chewing on it. That's, that's meditating on scripture. The Holy Spirit will, will work on your life, will help take the log out of your eye if you slowly tiny, tiny, little bits by little bits, begin to allow this tool to kind of begin sweeping things out. And it's a real slow process. It's sometimes a frustrating process. The second way that, that God will remove the logs from your eye is other people. Um, I've, I've, I think, shared this example before, but it's, um, it's one that's just very relevant for me. It's a great... I, You'll see why I think about it like almost every day. Um, <clears throat> I've got a good friend named, named Dustin, and Dustin is like 6'4". In my whole life, I dreamed of being 6'. I'm the shortest male in my family. They're all like over 6, and I'm just doggone it, like a half inch below. <laughs> I'm not bitter about it, though. Um, and, and, uh, and so, well, be, because of this disability that I have, um, <laughs> I do not see the top of my refrigerator. I just don't see it. Like, I really don't. If I go like this, you know, like I can kind of see and stuff. Well, all of my family, my friend Dustin, they come over. And Dustin was the first one who did it. Um, he was in a small group one time with this. And he's walking by. And he just goes, oh, gross. And I go, what? And he goes, and he just gets a, a, a wet paper towel. And he's just like. <laughs> and I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing at the top of my refrigerator? And he goes, dude, you got like an inch worth of just like junk up. There's gross. It's just, you know, dust and all. And, I was, and he pulled it down. I'm like, oh, that's nasty. That was up there. And he goes, yeah, well, why don't you clean your refrigerator? I'm like, why would I? I've never even thought of the top of my refrigerator. It's never crossed my mind at the top of my refrigerator. Why? Because the way I'm built, I will never see the top of my refrigerator without help. I just will not. So what do I need? I need someone in my life who, because of how they are built, they can actually see the top of my refrigerator. And so now, I literally, I swear, almost every single day, when I walk to my refrigerator, I go like, <laughs> I'm like, eh, it's not so bad. And no, I've even got like the hose adapter kind of thing out, you know, kind of clean the top of it. But it's just hard for me because my little arm can't get up there. You know, I just can't even get it. If you live the Jesus life by yourself, there will simply be places in your life just because of how you are, your heart, you will never, ever see you just won't. And it's not a way to condemn you. You just won't. But the reality is God has put community around you. And if you say yes, if you do things like, I'll join a small group and ask Dustin Camping to be a part of it. 
If you say, I'm going to join that known small group, I'm going to go to that Bible study, I'm going to go serve in the kids area, I'm going to go check out and serve, I'm going to go get involved and be a part of community, God will put someone in your life who can see somewhere that you would never ever see by yourself, and you will be impoverished for living life on your own. It's not just some hapless thing. See, when you discover the log in your own eye, what do you do? Holy Spirit points it out through this. He gives you community and he sorts it out and you see it. It's not gone, but you're just aware. I've got a stinking log hanging out of my eye right now. I can't even see accurately. What do you do? What, according to Jesus, is the process by which you remove the log from your eye? And it's the most wonderful gift. It's a miraculous gift. It's called repentance. And it's marvelous. It's miraculous. Let me read some words to you by one of my favorite authors, Rosaria Butterfield. She says this about repentance. Repentance is a bittersweet business, she says. Repentance is not just a conversion exercise. It is the posture of the Christian. Just like a dancer's body finds her points and an equestrian incorporates her body into the movement of the horse, the Christian learns how to melt her will into God's. Repentance is the threshold to God. When heat meets ice, the solid substance liquefies completely. Repentance liquefies the will of the flesh. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute wake-up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus' blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. She goes on to say, repentance is the only no-shame solution to the renewed Christian conscience because it proves the obvious God was right all along. To the sinner, repentance feels like death because it is. The you who once was is no longer, even if your old feelings remain. Your point of view and Christ's atonement impact like a slow motion car crash. As you see how he satisfied God's justice for you and for me. And in that car crash, you, you smell the blood, hear the agony the spurts, the fits, and all of a sudden, you see what you could not see before. You cost Jesus everything. Life, dignity, respect, peace. He did not deserve this, not even close, but he did more than accept this fate. He embraced it. He embraced it out of his love for you and for me and for the mysterious glory that only this kind of God love can manifest. When you step into the atonement, when you step into the atonement, you are no longer a bystander. The blood is on your hands. What happens in repentance of sin is you see Jesus, as he is in Revelation 19, 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. See, in repentance, I see my sin for what it really is. In repentance, I see what my sin cost. In repentance, Jesus' atoning death 
intersects my life like that slow motion car crash. In repentance, I see that I'm not a bystander. I'm a participant. That my sins, my hypocritical sins, all my religious covering up, have all been completely and utterly removed by the death of Jesus. See, that's the only power I would suggest. That is, until you were shattered by that, until you get involved in that slow motion car crash that Rosaria Butterfield talks about, that is the only way to live your life where you have a conviction of what's true, you love truth, but there's also a grace and a gentleness with your life. You don't bash people over the head with truth. There's love without sacrificing truth in the other way. So one final question. If you would say, uh, I sometimes veer into that place of I'm that judgmental person. Or others might say that I am, I don't know. I may have a log in my eye and I can't even see it. What is it that can really change your judgmental attitude toward others? Because see, if, if you've worked really, really hard your whole life to stay on the straight and narrow how are you going to look toward people who have kind of just thrown it all by the wayside, made horrible, unwise, stupid choices? You're going to feel superior. You're going to look down your nose at them. Or maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you grew up in a way which is away from God, but, but you've done so much, you've worked so hard, you've put so much sweat into reforming your life. How are you going to feel about those accomplishments? Are you going to feel like, well, God kind of owes me now. I've been faithful to him for so long. See, only, only, only if you have been shattered by the gospel. Only if, if you realize that what separates you from God, it's not just all your evil, bad, sinful deeds. It's your religious ones that you have used to try to make God in your debt or make you somehow more acceptable. That both those things separate you from God. Only if you've been shattered by the gospel will you be able to live in this Jesus community that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can be the kind of person who can give, and it's not about you. It's not about hypocrisy. You can pray, and it's not to be seen by others. It's about your connection with God. You can engage in spiritual disciplines and it's not about being seen so you can be that guy or that girl and you can engage in a life where you are one who helps people improve in their spiritual walk with Jesus to find areas of corrosion in their life in a way like a gentle doctor does you love truth and yet you're a gracious loving representative of Jesus only, 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 only if you've been shattered by the gospel.